This morning here at Calvary, we continue our series called Sin No More. And we are using John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 to illustrate for us the issue of perspective when it comes to the subject of sin. In John chapter 8, we have the famous occurrence of a woman brought before the uh, religious leaders, then brought before Jesus, as she had been discovered in the act of adultery. And we have four parties looking on upon this scenario where sin is at the center stage. We find Jesus himself. We find the religious leaders, the Pharisees. We find the people who were gathered there to listen to Jesus teach prior to being interrupted by the religious leaders and the woman herself. We began this series several weeks ago because we believe that it is necessary to once again to reinforce the understanding that sin is serious before God. Let me say that again. Sin is serious before God. Today we live in a world that I believe tempers our repulsive and detested nature towards sin, meaning that it calms us. It doesn't see it as serious as it should be to us. Now, please understand that we are huge proponents of the grace of God, and God's grace overcomes sin. We are a strong proponent of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the bridge that an individual who finds themselves separated from God by sin can use to once again re-establish and reconcile with a holy God. But if we lose our understanding of the seriousness of sin as a culture, the gospel then fails to show its true goodness. We've all been confronted with the reality of having to share the gospel with someone, and in that reality we have been forced to describe the bad news before the good news. In hopes that someone will truly appreciate for themselves what Christ has done, we must first tell them the bad news of the position in which they stand before a holy God. Because if we just hit them with the good news, they might not understand why it's such good news. If we just hit them with the good news, they can then uh, decide for themselves if they should uh, accept or decline. That's why it's imperative that we tell them the bad before the good. But that being said, today, sin is being minimalized. The issue of sin is being minimalized in our culture. Where the lines the, that once marked out sin clearly have been blurred extremely. So here we have in our text a woman caught in the act of adultery, and there is no one amongst any of the party that are debating the idea that adultery is sin before God. The question that they are confronted with is what to do about it. And as we've been working through this illustration, last week we looked at the offense how Christ viewed the sin and what sin means to God and why sin is offensive to God and therefore why God hates sin. And yet we discovered he can love the sinner. Today we look at it from the perspective of the religious leaders, the great antagonists of Jesus throughout the Gospels, the ones who caused him the most dismay. We know them as the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Let us read our text starting in verse 2 of chapter 8. Early in the morning, he, that is Jesus, came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, placing her in the midst and said to, them, said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, 
And they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they had heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Ah, the Pharisees. What shall we say about the Pharisees? They are antagonists, to be sure. Opponents to all that Christ was sent to do and to accomplish. The religious leaders at that time, 6,000 strong there in the what we would consider the Parliament of Jerusalem. They were the religious political party that was in charge at that time. And they had great influence over the people. As they were intermediaries between the oppressive Roman Empire and the people there in Israel, brokering deals that would appease their oppressors and also appease their people. The scribes were those who were training up and coming and one day would be Pharisees sitting in this place of prominence and position and ruling. And yet when it came to Jesus, they resisted him at every turn. They challenged him at every moment. This could not possibly be the Messiah. It just can't be. For they had set a profile that was so significant and so detailed that Jesus just did not conform to. And when this lowly, humble carpenter from Nazareth came on the scene, doing all of the works that the Messiah of the Old Testament was to do, but yet in a place of humility, rather than in a place of prominence himself, they could not bring themselves to embrace him as their Messiah. So they resisted him and tried to continuously discredit him before the eyes of the people. And they would do so legally in the sense that they would look to legally trip up Jesus by having him do something or say something that would contradict something that all had already embraced to be true. Here they wanted to know what to do with the woman. This woman caught in the act of adultery according to the law of Moses, must be stoned. Technically correct. But very short-sighted in their endeavors. A lot of work has been done historically to help us understand the mindset of Pharisees at the time of Jesus. Where there are not a lot of resources to draw from, in fact, there are only three. The New Testament itself, the writer Josephus, and rabbinical literature that has been compiled over the centuries give us an understanding of the mindset of the religious Pharisee at the time of Jesus Christ, helping us to understand why they do what they do, why they say what they say. Often, these sources do not agree with each other, but where they do agree with each other, you can almost be certain that it's correct. And one of the areas that they agree with is this. That the religious leaders at the time of Jesus Christ, the Pharisees themselves, were in the process of transforming the identity or what Judaism looked like by taking it away from a religion of sacrifice and making it more a religion that adhered to the law to interact and to worship God. Where they began to 
just bring the idea of sacrifice to a more lowly level and they began to exalt the idea of the law being the basis in which one interacts with God and self-righteousness there being the catalyst by one is then accepted by God and so forth. And what happened as they did this, they lost their perspective. They lost their understanding and how God desires to deal with sin. Part of the reasoning for their elevation of the legal manner in which to relate to God was the fact that they wanted to introduce oral tradition along with the Old Testament. Meaning that they wanted their oral tradition to have as much weight and authority as the written word of God. Does anybody see trouble with that ahead? And so they compiled works like the Talmud and the Mishnah, which contained the written oral tradition that they laid down and prescribed for people to follow in adherence to the law of God, which is the Old Testament Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And in so doing, they were prescribing a manner in which man related to God and God to man and in which must be handled perfectly or man and God remain separated. And the concept of sacrifice, though it was still prevalent, began to diminish in its weight. And they began to lost, lose, I should say, their fundamental appreciation for what that sacrifice actually meant. And as once you understand this little tidbit of historicity, you begin to understand a little bit more about the conversations between Jesus and the religious leaders. And in so doing, you discover why there is such an antagonism between the two. Because Jesus came to do what? To die. He was going to be the ultimate sacrifice. This is why we can find Jesus overturning the money changers' tables. Because sacrifice had been brought to such a low esteem that people were willing to buy and sell and market and trade and it was just brought to a commercialized business. And the ultimate sacrifice himself is walking through this marketplace. Can you find how offensive that would be to him? But the religious leaders wanted to prescribe how people should exercise and fulfill the requirements of the law. For example... If you wanted to fill the Sabbath perfectly, fulfill the requirements of the Sabbath, they had a 124-page document written on both sides that had to be fulfilled perfectly before one could say that they fulfilled the Sabbath perfectly. And this was all extra-biblical. This wasn't found in the Bible. This was their interpretation and understanding and practical application of how the Bible is meant to be applied in a person's life. So they would read the Torah, they would read the Old Testament account of the law, and then they would turn to the Talmud, they would find the, the chapter on Sabbath, and they'd find 124 pages that had to be read on a weekly basis. And then you had to adhere to the points that were found in, that tab, uh, in those 124 pages, and some believe it was near a thousand different points. Because that's the way they interacted with God. Rather than interacting with God on the basis of sacrifice. One wrote this. He said, They apparently were responsible for the transformation of Judaism from a religion of sacrifice to one of law. They were to develop the oral tradition... The teachers then had a twofold law that they could enforce, written and an oral. They saw the way to God as being through obedience to the law, and they were progressive. They were considered, excuse me, the progressives of the day willing to adopt new ideas and adapt the law to new situations, which raises a very interesting point. Because as you read through the Talmud and the collections of the different rabbis at that time, you could find areas where they were already differing in opinions. There were some that believed you could not get divorced under any reason whatsoever. But there were other Jewish rabbis who believed you could get divorced simply if your wife cooked the meal the wrong way. Nobody clap at that point, please. Okay. 
They were already differing. The culture of the day was seeping into their thinking because Rome was so loose on the issue of divorce. Now that is starting to penetrate into the thinking in the minds of the Pharisees and they now are beginning to resemble their culture more than God's desire and His Word. Again, as they were creating this oral tradition, the oral tradition is what is called fluent meaning it could change over time. Not like the Word of God, but it could be changed, it could be manipulated, and so forth. Understanding that they were moving from a sacrificial system to the one of the law brings us to a lot of understanding of some of the conflicts and dialogues between Jesus and the religious leaders. For example, in our text this morning, we realize that they had fully inform the people of the law of Moses. The law of Moses says this, that this woman should be stoned. Again, moving everyone from a sacrificial to a legal system, this woman was condemned before God and therefore needed to be dealt with and stoned. No room for mercy. No room for grace. No room for forgiveness. Jesus, what shall we do? Thinking that they had him cornered. If he says kill her, then they know that he is going against the Roman authority that would not allow the Jewish people to carry out capital punishment. And therefore they could accuse Jesus before the Romans and the Romans take Jesus and arrest him. If If he arbitrarily said, just let her go then it would look like he was soft on the law of Moses, which of course they were trying to instill as the catalyst between uh, the person and God himself. This leads towards what I call a horizontal reconciliation, meaning that it is solely in place to deal with people-to-people relationships. It tends to draw people into a legalistic relationship with God, meaning that my interaction with God, God's favor towards me, is completely dependent on what I do for God. And when I please Him through my actions, I have favor with Him. When I do not please Him through my actions, I do not have favor with Him. And it is a constant roller coaster ride in the life of an individual who approaches God on that basis. No, I'm sure at one time or another you have gone there yourself. Where difficulties arise and come about and you say, oh, if I just would have read a half hour more every day, if I just would have prayed a half hour more every day, I wouldn't be going through these troubles. Or something great happens and you say, see, God is pleased with the half hour that I prayed. God is pleased with the half hour that I read. God is pleased with the money that I gave to church, etc., That's all legalism. That's the basis of relating to God based upon our works. And it is one of the most inconsistent manners in which to have a relationship. It is more preoccupied with repercussions than repentance. Repentance wasn't even in view here. There was no way out, apparently, for this woman. Jesus was trapped, and yet the mastery of our Lord and Savior drew upon other passages of the law. Undoubtedly, whatever he wrote in the ground was enough to get their attention and to cause them a moment of pause so he could personally challenge them to say, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. What Jesus wrote, we don't know. Possibly the sins of their own heart. Deuteronomy clearly tells us that if a witness brings a person before God, before a tribunal, before a Pharisee, a judge, and has malice in their heart, they too are guilty before that judge. All of these issues point to a horizontal reconciliation. These individuals were looking to keep the status quo. They wanted to appease God by conformity into a legalistic system before God. And then there's Jesus. Now you have to understand what the contrast is here. You have to grasp this. 
Because Jesus is the antithesis of everything that they are stating. And yet, they still do not grasp it. From the very beginning of the Bible, everything that had to do with interaction between man and God was not based on a horizontal relationship. It was based on a vertical relationship between man and God. Adam and Eve, one of the very first things they did was sacrifice. When God finally met them, when God interacted with them, he killed two animals to clothe them. When Noah first came out of the ark after the period of flood, what did he do? He worshipped God there on an altar through sacrifice. Abraham taking his own son Isaac up to be sacrificed over and over and over again. Later finding these things being counted as faith as Abraham was obedient to God through these things. Then we come to Jacob and the sacrifices that he offered. Moses instituting the sacrifices through the Levitical system that has been handed down. David sacrificing unto God. And then we come to Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice for it all. All of these things had reconciliation and repentance within their midst. Let me explain what I'm saying. Legalism is never going to bring you right before God. You are not going to make yourself right before God by simply conforming your outward actions to the desires of God. It must be an inward change. God must change the heart of a person. And from that change that is found within the heart of a person, it then manifests itself in the everyday living of that person. That's what God is seeking. That's what God is looking for. And it will never, ever, ever be obtained on a horizontal level by keeping a legal system before God. It is only going to be obtained as we move into a vertical relationship with God, understanding that it is through Christ that a new birth occurs And after that new birth, the Spirit of God resides within us. The Spirit of God then starts a sanctification process that moves us away from the world and conforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. No one is going to conform into the image of Jesus Christ from the outward in. It's always going to incur from the inside out. Does that make sense? So you can try as hard as you want, but you'll never get there if you do it under your own endeavors. It must be a work of the Spirit of God inside the man or woman or child of God. It is interesting. We have an account. Let me read this to you. Luke 15, 1 through 7. You can look at it on your own. And knowing this, knowing that the religious leaders were looking for conformity from the people, anyone who didn't conform would be thrown into a class of citizenship that they simply entitled sinner. Listen to what Jesus says here. Luke 15, 1 through 7. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes, once again, grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them a parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, If he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There's a lot to be said in here that we need to understand concerning sin. Jesus, God, is in the business of reconciliation. Reconciling man, you and I, to God. Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. And the means by which he can do so is through the means of sacrifice, which is a vertical means rather than a horizontal means. This is enormous. We must understand this 
if you're going to understand where I'm going to bring you to understand how it's impacting our culture today in the church. Listen to what one wrote, another historian, as we were making our way. All three sources, the New Testament, Josephus, and the rabbinic literature collections, although they understand the Pharisees very differently, suppose the conclusions that they were of a lay origin, not a priestly association. Who were thought to be experts in the laws, they were in association or a sociological sense retainers who broke the power between the aristocrats and the masses and promoted a special living tradition in addition to the laws. They were very interesting in issues of ritual purity and tithing, and they believed in the afterlife judgment and a densely populated, organized spiritual world. However, though, they were more interested in the keeping of the rituals than they were of righteousness. The individuals had set a tone for the people and said, God must be interacted with this way. And in so doing, my conclusion is this. They negated the seriousness of sin. If man believes that their sin can be overcome by their legal efforts, then you are saying that man has the capability of saving themselves. And you are negating the work of Jesus Christ, the necessity of his crucifixion and his resurrection. You are stating that God's sacrifice of his only begotten son is not necessary. And you see this argument going into the book of Galatians and other places throughout the New Testament. These religious leaders are doing what many Churches are inadvertently doing today when it comes to the issue of sin. And this is where I need to bring you to today. Many are teaching today that sin can be overcome in a person's life by simply embracing and implementing certain principles within your life. Think about that for a moment. If that's the case, then the necessity of the Spirit is no longer necessary. If that's the case, then the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is no longer necessary. How many times have you gone to the Christian bookstore and you have found books that have written 14 principles on how to have a better marriage? But all of the principles must be implemented on the basis of your own endeavors and efforts. Ten principles in being a better parent, being a better husband, being a better person, being a better man, being a better friend on Facebook. There's always another book telling us principles and how we do these things. This is exactly what was happening at the time of the Pharisees. And there were very few that were moving people towards the understanding that it is the Spirit of God that works in you and changes you from the inside out. Understanding how the sacrifice of Jesus Christ plays out in every aspect of life. Turn with me to Matthew 23. One of the most scathing chapters within the Bible is directed towards these religious leaders known as Pharisees. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, you get a glimpse of Jesus trying to correct the perspective of the people. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to find a very interesting construction. It says, you have heard this, but I say to you this. And you see it numerous times throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus is trying to correct and literally bring them to a biblical focus on the issues rather than losing themselves in the minutiae of all these extra-biblical writings by the Pharisees. And in so doing, the Pharisees were creating a burden that no one could bear. No one could live up to the standard that they had set for people, including themselves. This is huge to understand. This is why when Jesus proclaimed, He who is uh, under heavy laden, he who is burdened under heavy laden, come to me and I shall give you rest, for my burdens are light. Yeah, compared to the Pharisees, believing by faith in Jesus Christ, a lot easier, right? 
and a lot more perfected. Then it comes to the religious leaders laying upon all these rules, regulations, and traditions through this oral tradition, moving them away from the understanding of sacrifice, that vertical relationship, and moving them into a horizontal one with God, meaning that I'm going to relate to him on this level, and it's all dependent upon me. Listen to what he says here. With all that we have discussed up until this point, listen if these words don't ring somewhat true or more profound now than they did before. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, verse 1, The scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on the Moses' seat. They sit in a place of authority. So do observe whatever they tell you, meaning as if they're reading the Word of God, if they're instructing you in the Word of God. But he goes on to say, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on the people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries, which is a little box, broad and their fringes long. A phylactery was uh, a little box that they strapped on their uh, forehead or on their hand because the law had said that you should always have the Word of God before you. So they took it literally like that and they made little boxes and they put little scrolls in it and they put it on their foreheads and some of them were like this. That's the phylactery. That's the Binford 9000 phylactery. That, that's it right there, man. Man, that guy's got the Cadillac model. I got this little tiny Toyota. This guy's got it, you know. And then the fringe on the robes meant separation, righteousness, uh, that of one who was meant to be esteemed as a rabbi. In fact, many believe Jesus had these fringes on his robe. He's the only one that I think that should have. But they were very long, so they were very draped behind the individual. So as he moved through the crowds, his fringe would be uh, very noticeable. So, ooh, check out that fringe, man. And they love the fact that they're placed in positions of honors at feasts. And they have the best seats in the synagogues and greeting in the marketplaces and called rabbi by others, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers, and all call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructor, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servants. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Then he moves into a series of seven woes. Let's listen to these. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in the people's face. For you neither enter it yourselves nor allow those who would enter it to go in meaning that they did not recognize that the entrance into the kingdom of heaven stood before them in the person of Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. They didn't see it. They shut it up in front of the people's face, meaning telling the people to turn away. And those who would go with Christ, they were discouraging from doing so. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across the sea and land to make a single prosthetite, and when he becomes a philosophite, meaning a follower of God as a Jew from the Gentile nations, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Wouldn't you like to be a fly in the wall for this conversation? Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. This is what he was saying that if someone tries to bind an oath by saying, I swear on the temple of God, the Pharisees say, well, that's not good enough. Now, if that person binds the oath by saying, I swear on the gold of the temple, oh, you better see it through. And Jesus is like, what are you, nuts? Listen to what he says here. You blind fools. Which is the greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. 
But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound to his oath. You blind men! For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? And what is placed on the altar, by the way? Sacrifices. You can see how they've diminished the sacrifice, the, the process of sacrifice itself. They were taking the monetary value of the gift instead. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, meaning that these little bit of spices, they would then take 10% of those spices and give them back to God. How's that? You know, next week, uh, tithes and offering. If any of you put a little thing of seasoning in there, we're going to find out who you are. Okay? But that's what they did. But look at what they neglected. And having neglected the weightier matters of the law, such as justice and mercy and faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You think Jesus is trying to say something here? For you clean out the outside of a cup and plate, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean. What did we just say? God works from the inside out, not the outside in, which they had prescribed the outside in. Woe to you, verse 27, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So also you are outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate uh, the mountains of the righteous, saying, Now if we have lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Meaning we wouldn't have killed them. They were wrong in doing so. We would never repeat that mistake. Really? Verse 31, Thus you witness against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Look at what he calls them. You serpents. You brood of vipers. How will you escape being sentenced to what? Hell. Therefore I send you the prophets and the wise men and the scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that you may come all under the righteous bloodshed on the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel, the first one killed, to the blood of Zechariah, the last one killed in that way in the Old Testament, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you all these things, will come upon this generation. The issue of sin to God is a very serious thing. We have all heard at one time or another that people do not want to interact or go to church or discuss God because God's followers are all hypocrites and everyone who goes to the church is a hypocrite. How many times have you heard something like that? Well, you know what? It's true. At times in our lives we are hypocritical, aren't we? We say thing, one thing, we do another. Sometimes unintentionally, sometimes intentionally. These people were personally deceiving others by stating that a right relationship with God could be brought about through horizontal means, meaning the law states it, you fulfill it, that's all that's required. God says, no, it's a vertical change. It's something that changes on the inside of a person's heart and moves to the outside, and that is only established through the resurrected spirit of the individual that comes from coming to Christ and being saved. And that is only through the sacrifice in which he offers on our behalf. Let me bring one last thing to you before I sum it all up, because you're probably like saying, great information on Pharisees, but where are we going with all of this? I'll sum it up for you in just a minute. Turn with me to Psalm 18. Oh, I'm sorry, 118, 26 to 29. 
And put your finger there and read with me the last portion of Matthew 23. Because we are going to find that Jesus here weeps over Jerusalem for their unwillingness to come to him. O Jerusalem, Jesus says in Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wing, and yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That last sentence there is a quote from Psalm 118, 26-29. And it is interesting to me that in its context there in the psalm, it has to do with the salvation that God brings to his people. In verse 26 of Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. Look what they are encouraged to do. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. They lost it. The importance of the cornerstone of the Jewish faith being that of sacrifice. Each and every sacrifice a Jewish person would bring to the altar would remind them of the necessity of the cleansing of sin. If sin can be overcome by just a simple outward change of behavior, then sacrifice is no longer necessary, the crucifixion is no longer necessary, and if it can be brought about in human effort, the Spirit of God is no longer necessary. What I believe is happening amongst our culture today and in many churches today is that Many churches give a plan to their people to correct sin that appeals to an individual's horizontal plane of relationship. Now, what do I mean by that? How often have you been, have you heard, and I just heard it this week on our local Christian radio stations, appealing to a person to correct the sin in their life simply on the basis of their personal betterment? You'll be a better husband to your wife if you deal with your sin. You'll be a better father to your children if you just deal with your sin. Showing that person that dealing with their sin is motivated and provoked by simply some self-serving mean, even if it's a good one, and totally sidesteps the whole understanding of sacrifice and our interaction with God. Do you understand that when we sin, we sin against God alone, and unfortunately our sin affects many people around us? It is God who we have to get right with first. Then we can get right with others. You will never be right with the people around you in right relationships with the people around you until you are first right with God. The Bible stresses that from the beginning to the end. And today, many are looking to change behavior, but not change the heart. Jesus says, I'll change the heart, and therefore that'll change the behavior. It's a completely different approach to sin. Where many are looking for outward conformity, Jesus is interested in inward transformity. Today, Many are looking for uniformity amongst Christians when God is looking for conformity into the image of Jesus Christ. 
The religious leaders approach their sin on the basis of we will deal with that sin if we simply kill that woman. Is that true? Well, it may be true in that one particular account, but it hasn't served anything to better anybody. It's dealt with that one particular issue. We don't even know where the man is. Who knows who the man was? But all it dealt with was that one personal thing. They were more concerned about outward conformity to the law of God than inward conformity to the image of Christ. This is the difference. We, as the children of God, must understand that if we are going to deal with sin in our life, yes, we must be obedient to the Word of God, changing our minds and therefore our actions, but that is not based upon my own endeavors. It's The ability is given to me because Christ died for me. He rose again, allowing me to have new life in Him. And therefore, that new life in me allows that, therefore, me to live as God would have me to live. That I'm no longer bound by the desires of my flesh. I'm no longer bound to the bondages of my own life. I am now free from these things. And as a result, I then can change. And the biblical word for that change is sanctification being set apart for the purposes of God, meaning conforming to look like Him more in my life, that I, that I act more like Him in my thought life, in my actions, and in my words. So how, as a church, do we keep a sacrificial, vertical proportion to God rather than a horizontal, relational perspective to God? It's very simple. It's very, very simple. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ must be the cornerstone of any church. And embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, you are stating that you are looking for a vertical change rather than a horizontal change. You are admitting that man cannot save himself, man cannot change himself. Don't you love the term self-help groups? Have you ever thought about that for a moment? And how ineffective many of them are because people just don't have enough self to help themselves out of the problems that they got themselves into. This is a spirit-centered help that we have from God. It is this type of reconciliation and reconforming into the image of God that the Bible is seeking. And next time together, we're going to talk about how God deals with sin through the church. But we all must be in agreement that we cannot change our own behavior simply by changing our own behavior. It has to be a work of God in us that permanently changes us going forward. That's what we're seeking. And I want you to consider how Jesus rebuked these Pharisees over and over and over and over again for putting an alternative path before the people's thinking. It was completely self-centered in nature. But that being said, the transforming work of the gospel of Jesus Christ is never-ending. Every one of us here is a work in progress. You haven't arrived yet. God is still working, and each and every day He conforms you slowly into the image of Jesus Christ. And as we go to Him each and every day in our prayer lives, and as we read the Word of God, asking the Spirit of God to take the Word and to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, we are dealing with the sin that may linger in our lives. Though we are forgiven of those sins, and God has allowed us to become a new creation in Him. We know that the flesh still lingers and remains in ways. And so the promise is given to us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. The title of the message this morning was Hypocrisy. Saying one thing and doing another. 
living one way, but inwardly thinking and acting and considering completely in the opposite fashion. No one likes hypocrisy when it rears its ugly head, but yet what I am saying is that many churches are endeavoring to put their people on a pursuit of correcting and sanctifying themselves that will lead to further hypocrisy in their life. I know some of you are like, man, wow, didn't expect a full rendition on the Pharisees today. But to understand this thinking, now consider everything Jesus said. And if you have any doubt in what I'm saying, think about the cornerstone verse of John's Gospel and how it has sacrifice written all over it, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever shall believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's on that basis that man interacts with God through that sacrifice, a reality that the Jewish people should have known and seen for themselves each and every time a lamb was offered, a goat was offered, a sheep was offered, a bird was offered. There is no remission of sins apart from the shedding of blood. Let us understand fully what sin required and cost of our God It cost His only begotten Son. There was no other way around it. And if we keep telling ourselves that there is some possible way that we can get around our own sin, that there's some possible way that I can overcome my own sin in and of myself, then all I am saying is I don't need Christ. His sacrifice was in vain. And the Spirit of God is of no necessity to me. Is that true? Or is that the biggest lie yet? Let's interact with God on the vertical, allowing Him to change us on the inside, to change our horizontal. Being right with Him first and right with others as a result. 